Welcome to the Clear Points Podcast, where we discuss optimizing customer experience by focusing on engagement points along the customer journey. Clear Points is a production of ClearPoint Health, a North Carolina consulting firm that helps healthcare providers and life sciences companies get to know their patients, customers, and key stakeholders and meet their needs more effectively. Clear Points airs on the ParkLife Podcast Network. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Clear Points the podcast where we discuss all sorts of interesting topics around thought leadership and insights for the life sciences industry. I'm Brian Castle, and I'm joined by two of the very best people to ever walk this earth. Kristen Smithwick, co-founder of our company, back on the pod for probably, what, the third or fourth time, and making her podcast debut Co-founder Lisa Smith. How are you, ladies? Doing great. Fine. We're here today to talk about one of the topics where we think we take a different stance from other companies in our space. As as with any business uh, over the last 25 to 50 years, uh, technology's had a lot of influence on how we go about our work and in our industry, um, which is primarily secondary research on key opinion leaders, digital influencers, uh, and look, taking a look at institutions and their impact on the medical community. We, we, we encounter a lot of competition in each of those respective spaces And we always see some companies that choose what you might think of as a technology first approach, developing great software, and then sort of backfilling it with automated research. Then you have companies like ours who are clearly more about the research and then using different technologies to convey its effectiveness. And then there's obviously a whole spectrum in between um, it does seem like technology keeps changing the game. And I wanted to talk with the two of you, since you're experts in this space, about some of the ways that automation has been good. Uh, let's just start the discussion on, on KOL identification, where we look at key opinion leaders. There, there's a lot of data sources, a lot of data points in that. Can one of you kind of take the baton and Talk us through that. Sure. So I would say one of the places where automation has really been helpful is in dealing with very large amounts of data. So there are some newer data sources that have come uh, available in the last few years, like uh, the Sunshine data through Open Payments, where there's just a tremendous amount of data that can potentially be used. And in order to weed through that and get what is a useful insight, you need to have some sort of way to automatically go through what is literally millions of records. And so I think that um, the, the automation has made it easier to get through 
that kind of information and get to what you really need so that you can find out what you really want to about an individual's experience. And you're referring to just to add a little context for our audience, you're referring specifically to the database that's been around about seven or eight years um, where companies need to disclose um, pretty much any payments they're making to medical professionals, whether it's for consulting or even buying people lunch, correct? Yeah. And so like if you take one manufacturer and one year's worth of their payments just for what they call general payments, which would be um, eating, drinking, consulting, speaking, just that alone is 600,000 entries. So you multiply that by the number of companies there are, by the number of years that they've been keeping this data, and you're talking about weeding through several million lines of data in order to get to the information that you need. And are you basically saying that you're unwilling to do that by hand, or is it that? Yes. The, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, if you're looking for one person, sure, you can do that by hand because there are search engines that will let you look for one person, but then you've only got information about one person. So if you want to make any sort of um, decisions about prioritizing anything, then you're going to need to have data on multiple data points or people or topics companies, whatever it may be, you're looking to make a decision around. And therefore, yes, I am not willing to do that process 300 times by hand. <laughs> so Kristen, can you, what, what comes to mind? I know you've been a part of, like Lisa, streamlining our efforts over the last few years. We, we had a process of profiling key opinion leaders that was it was never not, you know, at least partially automated, but it was a lot more by hand 10 years ago than it is now. What other aspects of that do you think have been important to automate? Well, I'd like to add to something that Lisa said and then answer your question if I can, Brian. You know, our business is trying to find the right kind of experts for our clients. And our clients are looking for people generally that have very specific types of experience in their background. They may be working with specific patient populations. Um, they certainly are, you know, focused in some very specific ways on you know, different disease states or ways to treat those disease states. And when you're talking about trying to find all of those different factors to basically build a group of people that might be effective advisors and consultants, um, experts for our clients to turn to with questions and an engagement of different, you know, different kinds of engagement. You got to have a lot of different information sources to be able to find people with all those different kinds of experiences or those different kinds of skills. So technology has really made it possible for their, for companies like us to have kind of our pick of, of data sources. If you can think about what a, 
physician or a nurse or a healthcare professional is doing in in their you know in their sphere, and you think about all the different you know um, attributes that might be building their experience profile. Nine times out of ten, we can go find a data source that hits on those attributes. So that technology has made that possible. Big government entities like you know, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, they make that database that Lisa just talked about available. But other governments around the world make lots of data available about healthcare professionals. Everything from claims data for you know, people who are participating in Medicare or Medica Medicaid here in the United States to all sorts of patient level healthcare data um, from Health Canada. So technology is a big driver, it just helps us be able to do what we do in more refined ways. Now, to answer your question about automation, um, yeah, our, the early days of our work were really human driven <laughs> in every sense of the word. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we've been able to automate almost every single process that we execute in some way, shape, or form. We might not be able to automate from end to end a process, but we can automate specific steps along that process. And we're going to talk in a minute about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. Well, I I don't want to, I don't want to like spoil, I don't have a spoiler here, but you got to have both. You got to do both. So you and I, Kristen, have been leading the company's efforts around digital opinion leaders. And this is a, an area where we've tried for years to do what some might think of by hand research, like going to different social media platforms. platforms. Yeah, and doing searches on each platform, trying to find folks. And we've come to the conclusion that that process you can't do it anymore without the right tools. And, and you know, that we've seen, we've talked about this a million times and even on this podcast about how about three years ago, there was a tipping point, a, a critical mass of people in the healthcare community started jumping in on social and digital media um, to go beyond those early adopters, which were mainly medical societies. And now even in what we would think of as a medium-sized therapeutic area, there can be tens or hundreds of millions of data points. <laughs> if you think mm -hmm. of every tweet, every Facebook post, right. every blog post, uh, it's just really easy to rack up those numbers. And thankfully, there are some pretty loaded tools out there. Um, but there are some pitfalls to that. If you just rely on the tools... Um, that we'll talk about in a few minutes. I'd like for both of you, you've both led work where we've looked at entities like medical centers of excellence, uh, typically treating hospitals that are joined up with medical schools, uh, not always, but usually. And then, of course, with uh, integrated health systems. I think you've worked with some Great databases in both. Lisa, I know um, over the last few years, we've done some work using hospital databases in order to help our clients even understand 
the rise of integrated health systems and, and how to get their arms around segmenting them. What do you think are some of the useful uh, capabilities that that technology brings to the table? I think for health systems, it really varies a lot by country what's out there. But one common element is that all the various countries that we work in, the governments are keeping information, they're keeping data about what's available, about what patients are treated, about patient populations, um, often about costs associated with specific procedures and whatnot. And that's all usually available to us, Um, but it's big. If you can imagine the number of transactions that I spoke of earlier about individuals, when you roll them up and you look at all the transactions for a given, say, ICD-9 code or ICD-10 code in um, at Mass General Hospital, that's a huge number of things. And it gets rolled up into some kind of government system. And then to get that data back out and be able to analyze it, as well as like all the research work that's going on at these institutions, whether you're getting that data through, you know, various clinical trial sites, whether you're getting it through the NIH, um, all of that kind of information is individual lines that have to add up in a meaningful way. And that's where automation does its best. And I know we're going to talk about this in a little while, But automation works really well when there's the ability to have a unique entity and have automation roll up everything that goes in that unique entity. So a health system is a great example. They're organized in logical ways. So I have this provider group, I have this hospital, I have this other hospital, and they roll up into this integrated delivery network, hence the integrated. So I can take all those pieces and I can roll them up. So that's a place where automation does a great job of doing the roll up process so you don't have to do it by hand. Clear Points is brought to you by ClearPoint Health on the Park Life Podcast Network. CPH has been a leader in healthcare customer experience for nearly two decades. Contact us today at clearpointhealth.com to learn more about our work to help you optimize virtual engagement of key stakeholders during COVID-19. Well, let's, let's shift into the flip side of that. You know, we know that our clients have been handed, you know, here are the top hundred influencers in your therapeutic area and over 90 of them would just be people who are using the hashtags, but have no relevance. They don't practice medicine. They don't research. They're not even journalists in the space. It's just people who are passing off things and repeating them. And so, you know, Kristen and I have, really stressed to our clients and prospects the need to discuss the kinds of influencers, whether they're practitioners, researchers, or or the entities we've been talking about, like centers of excellence. And, And then 
really knowing the space and, and getting people like micro influencers so that your technology driven approach is, is going to be a data dump on keywords and it'll never get your micro influencer because they don't have the most followers. They might have the most relevant follower base, which is why our clients want to engage them. Um, so the DOL space is very problematic. Like we said earlier, you have to have good technology tools to get in the game, but it's, you still need somebody to swing the bat. You know, philosophically, I, I think I think about what we're asked to do and the end use of all of the information and the great research that we provide. The end use is to help people um, develop more meaningful relationships faster. And nobody goes into relationship development completely automated. So I kind of see that we've been asked to perform a really important filtering function. And so our number one job is to try to put some application of human validation on what, you know, what the world of information that's available to us can tell us about who are the experts in a given area. And specifically, who are the given experts that are relevant to our client in the given area? So we're like the first line of defense, in my opinion, which means that we should be using a mix of some automated tools and technologies to try to identify, you know, a, the, a number of people that seem to hit on all the right attributes and criteria. But they're paying us to put a little bit of that human element in it, into it before they get to put their human element into it. And ours is to try to discern what's the real valid, relevant experience based on what all this automated stuff is telling us. And then they're going to actually go and do the next level, which is, are these people even people that want to work with us? You know, how do they want to work with us? And, you know, we can even provide some additional filtering to help them figure some of that out. But at the end of the day, they've got to they've got to have a people element. So our job shouldn't be devoid of the human interaction. And well, I'm glad you brought up the relevance factor. You know, we've we've built our methodologies on, you know, you have to find some way for people and entities to show up, their influence to show up. And that's you start with the quantity of interactions, whether that's the number of publications or tweets or whatever. Um, but then you start moving into things like quality. Are yeah. they, are they talking about this stuff on a blog that nobody reads or do they have a thousand Twitter followers at, at a major hospital? Yeah. Um, and so, and then the, the piece we always stress on top of those two, where I think a lot of folks stop, is that relevance factor. If I was going to generate a list in a vacuum of the top hundred influencers in a given therapeutic area, well, if it's just trivia, those first two, the, the quantity right. and quality, right? Right. But our, our clients aren't hiring us to do trivia. <laughs> it's to feed those engagements that they do. And so the relevance that's that's the missing piece, and it becomes so much more important with each each of this kind of work to make sure you're getting the right people and the right entities. 
Well, it doesn't. Relevant, relevance falls, relevance needs human interaction. You can only go so far with automation or technology tools. You have to have a human element to ensure relevance. That's where the prepackaged lists and prepackaged um, sort of groups by specialty fall short is in really understanding the nuances of our clients' products. So that specificity of knowing not only is this person going to talk about diabetes, they're going to talk about diabetes in regards to this specific area that this drug is focused on or this treatment is focused on. And that's really important. Agreed. I mean, you know, we've had we've had all these projects before too, Lisa. We we've used diabetes as a an example a lot because it's such a good one. <laughs> so there's so many people that are important to managing diabetes per patient. But think about all those oncology um, products we've worked on, especially some of these that have needed to have the diagnostic testing that goes with it. And in those cases, our clients are trying not to just create relationships with the oncologists that are treating the cancer. They're trying to create relationships with the pathologist who have to understand there's a new test out there. And the test is integral to deciding which patients can actually take the medication. That's just not, that's that's the kind of complexity that our clients, you know, they need someone that can understand the subtle nuances of why those two different groups would be important. And what do what do they need to understand about them? You can't get that out of a prepackaged set of information. Well, the other thing that I think the that is missing sometimes with automation and and with prepackaged, you know, items is balance, because a lot of times our clients come to us and they're looking for um, a balanced approach to communicating what the the what the um, product is right. is you know good at and in order to have that balance they need to be able to have a certain number of nurses let's say or a certain number of pharmacists or a certain number of whatever so that they give a complete message about to all the providers who may have access or be involved in the decisions around a specific patient and so I think that also is something that, you know, you can't tell automation to, True. I True. need X number of these and Y number of these. And, you know, I think all of that is important. I agree. Well, let's move in and, and, and talk about um, some of the work we do that, to my mind at least, is mostly human driven. Um, the technology is almost an afterthought in some cases. Um, something we that we don't talk about enough, but we're about to start talking about a lot around here because um, companies really need this. They need to do it in much more compliant ways than we think the companies that have worked with us are among the most compliant out there. And that's with regard to speaker bureau selection. Uh, when you're engaging with promotional speakers um, to do the dinner meetings, to do the educational sessions with their peers. And I know a lot of doctors 
are very passionate about that, about sharing with their colleagues. Um, in order to do this right, I think there's a high level of human input. Can you share a little bit, Kristen, about what we do in that space? Sure. Um, well, you're right. There is a high level of human input because of every, really the last point of what we just talked about, which is Speakers Bureau normally has to be large enough to enable a company to have enough potential speakers on a wide ranging group of products in a portfolio and to be able to address a wide ranging you know, list of topics about those different products and geography and, and geographies exactly and because of that you can't just go to one place and pop out a prepackaged list of the ideal speakers <laughs> it, you really it's like putting together um you know a, a recipe like a, a cake recipe where you've got lots of different you know unique ingredients that need to go in in specific sizes now I need a certain number of nurses versus a certain number of physicians versus a certain number of pharmacists. And the list can keep going depending on the portfolio of products. Um, and they all need to have a balance of um, credibility building experiences. In the past, speakers were invited to participate in a bureau because they were champions of a company doesn't sound terrible on the surface since their role is to be a promotional speaker that will educate peers about product. However, that is bad when you have nothing else that you can use to justify their credibility. And, um, and just prescribing a drug is not credibility building. They need to have some demonstration of a focus on patient care for those diseases that the products are treating. They need to have, you know, something, we had a client tell us one time, they sit down and they think about all of the criteria that they want their speakers to, to have. They think about having to introduce them at the podium. So if you stand up and you introduce a speaker at the podium, you can't, you gotta be able to say more than, hey, this guy or this gal treats patients with diabetes. They've got to have something else, you know, they Something say, other than, and they prescribe our drug a lot. <laughs> and they prescribe our drug a lot, exactly. I wanted to so, jump in, Kristen, on what you were yeah. saying. I mean, the settlement that came out around speakers bureaus um, last year, I think that we're going to see more companies need to have a standardized process. And I think this is a good point to talk about the difference between standardization and automation, because you want a lot of standardization for that kind of process, but you don't necessarily want a ton of automation. You just need to make sure that you're treating everybody equally, but you may need to use the human touch to get that specificity, that relevance, all the the Absolutely. nuances that you need. So there's this like delicate balance between like we don't want to lose track of standardization. You can still have standardization even when you don't have automation. Right. It'll allow for things like, you know, like you have your prescriber data, but you also need to know is someone a compelling speaker? And you do that 
through audience surveys typically. I mean, it's okay. I don't think you want that as your sole criterion. No, absolutely. I think in this instance, you know, what Lisa and I mean by standardization is a standardized set of criteria and the thresholds of that criteria that must be met to be eligible to be on a speaker's bureau. So, you know, that there are lots of elements that can go into a standardized approach with a standardized set of criteria and a standardized threshold for determining eligibility. And compensation. And compensation. That's right. And compensation, Brian. I mean, this stuff, the, the what we're talking about not only informs who do you invite to be part of the Bureau, but how do you compensate them? And that's also at heart of that settlement. So... And I think we're going to see more regulation around that um, because of the settlement. I think it's going to spur companies to really need a standardized approach that they're consistently using across their speakers bureaus. And something we've been doing for our clients for quite a while. So let's, let's end the discussion with a little piece of utopia. Like if we were coming up with the perfect blend of human driven, but technology assisted research where both of those elements are so important. Let's think about other business challenges uh, that our clients face and not necessarily around identifying and understanding stakeholders. Let's take optimizing their engagements. Like we know that we've gotten, we have the ability to get at certain data and then they can bring other data into the fold. How do we make all that make sense in a way where they can then act on that to make sure they're doing things the right way? I'll start off by saying that our clients have loads of data that we can potentially tap into to help them. And we can help them get that data because it's not always you know, already in the format where it can be analyzed. So for example, we've worked with clients to help them track what their MSLs are doing in the field, what they're hearing, um, how many people they're visiting, who they're visiting, all that kind of information. And so then you get that information and you can put it into a, a standard format where you can allow the client to really see insights Um, in their own data, even though they have all this data, they don't know what the heck it's saying and they um, haven't had the time or the expertise to analyze all of it. So that's the the first piece is getting it into a format where it can be used more readily. And then on top of that, I think you can marry other data sources and use those data sources to take the insights that they're getting from their own data and the insights that you can get from outside sources. Anything to add to that, Kristen? You know, I think like a perfect world, because you did tell us to think about utopia here, would be if we if we helped a client take their data and package it in a way that they could see their own insights and their own data, and then do what Lisa said, and you go and get external external information like we do when we survey KOLs 
who understand their thoughts and opinions about products and treatments and even companies and then to understand their beliefs and, and their preferences. And you marry that data together, like Lisa was starting to say, and then you not only can see the insights around your own activities, the data that you already have and what's happening, but you can see what your clients would like to have happen. And you can spot where you have gaps and then develop plans to close those gaps. And you can spot where you have real strength and you can build on that strength, which really takes customers to our customers to a place where they create relationships that have value exchange. So their customers are getting some kind of value out of the relationship and our clients, the manufacturers, are getting value out of the relationship. So we have the ability to help clients do that. Um, I think we have we haven't seen quite as many clients that are ready to take that leap to kind of marry those two pieces of the puzzle together. That can take our medical affairs customers to a place where they can begin to really define their own ROI within the company in a way that, that they struggle to do today. Well, I think we've had a nice discussion here, as I knew we would. Um, look forward to having both of you back. Thanks, Brian. This was a fun one. I look forward to the next. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for joining us. Subscribe to Clear Points on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify so you won't miss our next episode coming soon. Clear Points is a production of Clearpoint Health and the Park Life Podcast Network.